Gentlemen, start your engines. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right, everybody, welcome to our guest segment. Let me set this up for you. In the late summer of 1969, the nation was transfixed by a series of gruesome murders in the hills of Los Angeles. Newspapers and television programs detailed the brutal slayings of a beautiful actress named Sharon Tate, just 26 years old and eight months pregnant with her first child. Also killed was a hairstylist, an heiress, a small businessman, and other victims. The City of Angels was plunged into a nightmare of fear and dread. In the weeks and months that followed, law enforcement faced intense pressure to solve crimes that seemed to have no connection. Joining us tonight for the first time is our special guest, Lise Wheel. The book is called Hunting Charles Manson. You may remember Lise many years on with Bill O'Reilly on the Fox News Channel, a legal analyst, uh, incredible lawyer, and author of both fiction and nonfiction. And Lise Wheel, good to have you with us, ma'am. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on. And I know we're going to have you back again in a few weeks to talk about the Unabomber. And uh, when we do that interview, I actually have a relative that was involved in that case as well. Uh, he'll probably oh. kill me for mentioning that, but <laughs> uh, but I've got some some. Oh, no. No, I've got yeah, that'll be a fun interview. We'll do that one in a few weeks. I guess that's already scheduled. I have to ask you though, this book is so fascinating. I want you to start though with your firsthand experience of being at the parole hearing, the only member of the media at the parole hearing for Tex uh, Watkins, which I find fascinating that you were the only member of the media that was at that parole hearing and talk about being transported in time, because I know you were a young person uh, when this all went on in 1969. Um, but to be able to sit in that room, and to see that parole hearing, tell us who Tex uh, Watkins uh, is and tell us about that experience of being in that parole hearing. Well, it was really uh, awesome in the in the weirdest in the weirdest um, to be in that prison set, set, uh, setting, you know, full on max um, prison set, set, setting where I'm in that room with Tex Watson and I'm as close to him as if you and I were sitting having a cup of coffee together and, you know, just across the table because that's, there was nobody between us, you know, it was just Tex Watson and his lawyer and I'm on the other side of the table and there's actually nobody in between us and his lawyer on one side and down a long stretch of the table, there's the defense lawyer uh, sorry, the prosecution. And on the other side of her 
are the victims' families. One parole hearing to another, to another, to another over all of these years. And I'd gotten to know some of those victims' family members during the course of the investigation of this book. Kay Martley, Gary Hinman's uh, uh, aunt, um, she was there. And Gary Hinman was one of the first people killed in this, in this horrible killing spree. And I'd gotten to know some of those victims' family members. Um, and then across from the table, this long table, were the probation officers who were hearing Tex Watson's case. Now, Tex Watson, to set this up, Tex Watson, you know, we always hear about Charles Manson, but Tex Watson is the guy who actually did the murders, who actually wielded the weapons, um, who actually... Not to get gory and gross here, sorry if it's family hour, but who, you know, slit the throats of many of the victims and who told the girls, quote unquote girls, and the family, again, quote, what to do. He was the one who carried out Charles Manson's order. Charles Manson wasn't actually there at any of the settings. And of course, this was the big uh, task for Bugliosi, the prosecutor, when it came to prosecution, to prove conspiracy, and that's where the whole helter skelter thing comes in. We could talk about that later. But Tex Watson, Tex Watson so, so people actually carry. Yeah, this was the guy team. who actually committed these incredibly yes. brutal murders, and we're talking about so brutal yes. that that even if I understand it right, after they killed Sharon Tate, had they had the time, they were planning to carve open her belly and take the baby out. This is, I mean, and this well, is 1969. Yeah. This is before, this is before, you know, the horrors that we see in our modern day. This was at a time when people still didn't lock their, their doors. I remember my dad would leave the keys in the car. This really had to be, I think, one of those events that maybe changed our country where we started thinking differently about our personal security. What do you think? It, it did. It did. It absolutely did. It was one of the reasons that I was so fascinated in taking on this case and taking on this investigation to sort of reinvestigate it because it really was a pivotal point in American culture. I mean, it changed American innocence. It was one of these moments along with, you know, the killing of Martin Luther King, the killing of um, JFK, these, these moments in, in the sixties that really changed our culture that, you know, as you said, people would leave without any kind of home security. They would leave doors unlocked. Um, and that's, that's exactly what happened in the Tate home and the LaBianca home. The next door they had, the next day they had left, uh, for the weekend and they had left their homes, you know, the home unlocked. And that's what people did. And they would let their kids walk to school, you know, unguarded. They, they, that's, you know, today we don't, we can't even imagine that. No burglar alarm. No way. Leaving your kids, you know, kids walk to school, um, um, you know, by themselves. No way. But that was, the 1960s, and that's pre-Manson. What he did, or what his family did in those brutal nights in August, changed, helped change American culture, robbed American innocence forever. And it was really what I wanted to do was investigate the how and the why and the wherefore and everything 
of the hunt for him and why who he was and why the women followed him and all of that. But you, whatever you take from that, you can't take away from the pivotal moment that it really changed American innocence. And so Beck, when I was in that go room, ahead. yeah, I want I wanted I'm you to tell us more about that what that was like. What, and was he was he oh, able to? Was, did he was he able to speak? Did you have any like overwhelming yes, like? He, fe- walked, he walked through. He walked through exactly what happened those nights. Wow. And what was so strange about it, what was so You're giving me chills right. It, You're giving me chills uh, right now. This is incredible. It, oh yeah, Jim. As he, as he walked in, I mean, if I hadn't known who he was, it, he would have just looked like an ordinary guy who you know, honestly, didn't look that bad. I mean, he was obviously in pretty good shape. You know, he kept himself trim and neat and obviously worked out. Um, and he was, you know, pretty well kept. And if I had just passed him on the street in California, because that's where he was, you know, if he had just been let out, because that's what he was trying to be, you know, let out that that wasn't going to happen, but, you know, there were some quirks in the law, which I can tell you a little about, that the family was, the families of the victims were really concerned that he might be because of his age and because of the time that it happened in his life. He was still in his younger 20s and because of the time that had gone by, he'd spent so many years in prison already. But they were worried that there were some, you know, some uh, technicalities in California law that he might actually walk that day. Anyway, if I'd met him just as a passerby on the street, I would have thought, oh, Nice looking uh, gentleman, you know, out for a stroll. Uh, in good shape. And he spoke fairly softly, but he went through, you know, what exactly he did that night. I know how we cut the, how we cut the cords, how we saw, you know, um, young parent. This is the last name of the, of the young man that was going to college and drive up, you know, to the Tate home and how he killed him. <laughs> you know, brutally slaughtered him as he was driving up and just, you know, and he talked about Charlie and, oh, why couldn't Charlie but be a good Christian boy, you know? And he goes through this and just kind of methodical detail. And you could just see this, this probation officer get sort of more and more frustrated and angry kind of with him and I had been told you know I had been chastised before this whole hearing had started they 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 asked everybody to leave the room before Tex Watson was brought in before the victim's families were allowed to be brought in and the three probation officers talked to me and said well you know we know you've got clearance to be here we don't quite know how and you know ha 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 um, but you're here and but you can't make say a peep, you cannot so much as rustle a piece of paper and all that paper and pen or pencil actually. No no cameras, no cell phone, no nothing. Um I had been just like super searched. And uh but you know, you just be quiet as a little church mouse over there and do not make any you know, no motions on your face, no you know something in your catches you in your eye, just, you know, wink it off, but nothing. Just make no expression. So I just sit there, stone cold silence and, and expressionless listening to this. Um, but the probation officer himself, I could see, was not remaining so. He was getting pretty upset. 
And at one point, he just says to him, you know, what makes a God-fearing, church-going young man from Texas move to California and commit the worst killings the state has ever seen? And he says it in just like this thunderous tone. And Texas kind of looks straight on and stares at him. And he doesn't really have an answer. And, you know, he says, well, I was looking for work and, and Charlie gave me a family and a home and a, and love. And, you know, the, the officer says something like, you know, you're describing three of my four teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could have joined a chess team. You know, at that point, he looks over at me and I swear he was trying to make me like break up or something. You know, this was well into the day and I just didn't, I remained stone faced, but it was like, it, it, you know, what, what is going on in his head? And, um, you know, at this point that he said he, he found religion and, and that had changed him. But we, of course, all were very cynical about that. And, um, and, you know, it just, then it came to a reading at one point of the victim's name and he, and where to God, Jim, he had to look down at a blank piece of paper to read off the victim's name. Some of the family members and I were talking about later, you mean you've had all these years of prison and you can't memorize the people that you killed. You can't memorize their name right. and look straight at the probation officer when you're saying them. I think it was ridiculous. Um, but it must have been for you almost like almost strange. like going almost like going back in a time capsule. Like here's this case yeah. from so many years ago, almost it seems like from another universe this so many years ago. And you're sitting in a room with a guy that was there, was there at these murders. Let's talk we about the Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about Charles Manson. Here's a guy that um I'm absolutely I, I guess the word would be just fascinated by how he could get people to follow him uh, from everything I've read uh, five foot two inches. OK, not like a super attractive guy, a guy who spent a lot of years in prison before he got out and started uh, this building, this following. The only thing I could find about his transformation was that he supposedly studied Scientology for a short period of time in uh, prison and also took a Dale Carnegie course on how to win friends yeah. and influence yeah. people. Uh, he comes out and then he gets people to follow him. He gets all these free places to live. I mean, I, I've never heard of anybody that can move from one free ranch to another free ranch to a house that's free. Uh, just unbelievable the way that he was able to manipulate people and get these people to follow him. A kid that uh, was uh, born apparently to a 16 year old mother out of wedlock, a runaway. His mother was a runaway. Uh, he was in all kinds of different uh, foster homes involved with all kinds of problems, even spent some time at uh, um, at the the uh, the boys. Uh, what's it called? The, um, uh, the, the 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 boys home in Nevada, Boys Town. He was even there for a short time. Right. Uh, and I think this is a guy that is so messed up, like from so many different perspectives, how he gets out of prison and becomes this guru with followers. What do you make of that? It's, it's, 
is, is bizarre. I mean, he had, he had one wife he married really young, right? And he has a child by her. And then, and then he goes to prison and then he has another wife while he's in prison and he marries her. She's a prostitute and he marries her so that he can get a get, get out of jail free card because he convinces the judge that he's married to her and she's going to have a baby. And so, um, you know, he needs to get out of prison so he can feed her. So he uses her, the second woman, to get out of prison again. And meanwhile, while he's in prison, you're right. He reads all these uh, self-help books, the Dale Carnegie book, and that cha- that supposedly changes him, makes him, you know, figure out how to manipulate people. And in addition to that, one thing that you, that you, you forgot is the music, right? He is a not bad uh, guitar player and singer. And in those days, remember back time capsule, 1960s, it's free love, sex, rock and roll. And at a time when it's that whole kind of uh, summer of love, sexual revolution. The answer is blowing in the wind, my friend. The answer is blowing in the wind. Yeah. Yeah. And sexual revolution, young women, especially in the uh, middle class, white middle class, especially are revolting against their parents. And they see him as this kind of guru follower, you know, leader who's going to give them a family that they never had in their sort of privileged life, some of them. And he offers this love, as Tex Watson said, this, this, um, unequivocal, you know, all-encompassing love, but it's not really, right? Because to join, you have to, here's the cost, you have to give up your name, he's going to rename you, you have to give up your birthday, you don't have a birthday, or he'll give you another one, but they don't celebrate birthdays. You have to give up any contact with the outside world. There's, I think, one TV at some time, at some point, Spawn Ranch, because all the women go around and look at the TV news at one point. you have to give up your money if you have any money, because that all goes to the family. You have to give up all your identity, your children, if you have children by him or anyone else, because there's free sex going everywhere. They become part of the whole family. They're not really yours. So all of your identity goes to the family and towards him, because he's the guru. He's the he's the Jesus Christ figure. But but in a way, it's kind of easy in, in a sense, because then you don't have any responsibilities. To yourself, it's all to the family, and you can at the same time be this rebel, you know, revolting against your parents and getting away from them. It's it's for runaway. And there was this fantasy that was sort of a, a separate storyline in all of this, which is that he was going to become a big rock star. And a lot of his followers thought yes. that maybe he was going to be discovered and be a rock star. Then, if if nothing could be more strange, he ends up connecting with the drummer from the Beach Boys, right? And and he makes a connection with the... Right. And this is in the big days of the Beach Boys. So now he's got a, an in with the Beach Boys and he's able to get like some auditions and some recording sessions. Uh, tell us about that. Was it Dennis Wilson was, was the drummer and he even actually like moved right. into his house for a while? Oh, and this is probably Dennis Wilson's biggest regret ever. And you're right. Beach Boys are really, really big then. 
And, um, and there's, I mean, the Beach Boys are the Beach Boys. Love the Beach Boys, right? Yeah. But I'm sure Dennis Wilson, this is Dennis Wilson's hugest regret. Uh, and, and Manson was not bad. I mean, he was okay. And so the Beach Boys via Dennis Wilson, Dennis Wilson, um, you know, there was some initial interest, but of course, Manson saw that as I got a contract. I have a contract. I'm going to be a star. I'm going to be a rock star. And there's a lot of thought that if Manson had just become, had gotten a contract and had, you know, gotten that, that there never would have been anything else. There never would have been a helter skelter. I, I, I'm not sure of that at all because I think no matter what Manson's crazy, you know, sociopathic, uh, tendencies would not have been fed just by getting one, you know, music contract. But that certainly was a precipitator to this because he didn't get the contract and he went looking for Terry Melcher, who is a, um, Dennis Wilson's friend. He's a music producer and he, you know, he thinks that Terry Melcher, this music producer, has given him a contract and has somehow done him wrong. And so there's this wild hunt to try to find here, uh, Dennis Melcher, who had visited the house on Cielo Drive. And that's the house, of course, where Sharon Tate lives. And Terry, so Terry Melcher may have even lived at that house. I had read. I don't know if that's, right. if that's your research, but, but that murder, which many people thought, uh, maybe they just targeted, uh, the home of Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate because they were sort of maybe just representative of the society at that time, the, the upper class, the privilege that, that Manson had targeted them simply as representative of that. Uh, but, but as we look more into the story, there's a connection between that house and the, uh, the, and the, Terry, Melcher. the Terry Melcher and Terry Melcher, according to a lot of reading I've done on this, uh, Terry Melcher did sort of entertain uh, Manson's wildest imagination. Like he brought him in and they did recording sessions and he um, yeah. apparently because Manson kind of came on really strong, he he basically gave him hope. You know, that maybe something would happen and get in and, and kind of crack that door a little bit. And then when nothing did happen, that's when Manson felt like he was taken advantage of. And there's even some claim that uh, some of his actual music was was stolen or parts of it were used by the Beach Boys. Is that right? That's right. Well, that's certainly what Manson claims. And there's one song in particular that he says, you know, that Manson claims was completely ripped off, basically by the Beach Boys. Um, I, I think that's a very long stretch, and there certainly was no contract. But in Manson's sick mind, there was a contract. And he went off after this, you know, rampant um, search for Terry Melcher, thinking there was a contract. And, of course, there, when no contract materialized, that's when the heated, the heated, um, you know, discussions and the, and, and that's when it, it flipped to, you know, let's do something, you know, let's do something really wicked. 
to try and, to try to get uh, revenge. Now, now as an attorney, yeah. uh, Harvard law graduate, uh, incredible. Uh, I have to ask you: this was really groundbreaking law as well for Vincent Bugliosi, who had to prosecute a guy for murder yeah. who actually didn't commit any of the murders. And this is something that few people understand: that it was established that that neither did Manson commit any of these murders, meaning he personally did not go out and actually do the murders, but. It's also somewhat accepted that he did not actually order the murders, that the, the the argument that the prosecution had to make was that the murdering of these people was sort of implied in the in the overall, you know, um, I guess the atmosphere of the cult and what Manson was doing. So he was brought in as a co-conspirator of on the murders um, without any like, as we would say in legal terms, like really distinct overt action as being part of the conspiracy. Talk about that for a moment. Yeah, I mean, today we have the famous RICO statute, right, where you can bring in, I mean, it, it was created mostly for drug operations, but you have the RICO statute where you can bring in all these um, actors and you can put them in with one overt act and you can grab everybody on the on the wheel, right, of, of action. But this is pre-RICO and and so Bugliosi is operating on this. He's, he knows Manson is a leader of the family, but he, can, he doesn't have Manson at either of the places. He doesn't have Manson committing any, as you say, any overt act. So, but he knows Manson's the one, without Manson, none of this would have happened. So how does he get Manson to, um, get him on all these murder charges? And he comes up with the theory of Helter Skelter, which is that it was Manson that put this in their head because of this, this conspiracy of Helter Skelter. And the idea of Helter Skelter was that they would go and commit these crimes. And the crimes were just really a ruse to get the whole city of L.A. angry. I mean, this, now realize when I say this, this sounds horrible and racist and crazy. I'm not saying it as least wheel. I'm saying it as what Manson wanted Helter Skelter to be as his conspiracy. But he would, he thought, get the whole city of LA angry at African Americans in Los Angeles because they would think that it was the, that it was the Black Panther. It was the Black Panther movement. It was, it was, it was they that were doing these horrible crimes and with, and with putting, um, you know, these, these, uh, epitaphs up in blood. The crime scenes were horrible. And again, I don't really, you know, want to go too much into it into your show. It's just you know, awful and disgusting. But, you know, Piggy and everything like that that they wrote, on with their with Sharon Tate and other and other of their victims' blood, both on the night of the Sharon Tate murder, and then the other the next night, uh, two nights later, sorry, La Bianca's when they were so brutally murdered, political piggy, all this really horrible stuff that the LAPD and Los Angeles, even more importantly, would think that it was um, it was African Americans that were doing it, and that that would create really almost a race war hmm. in Los Angeles, like never bo seen before. And it would pit black against white. 
in a way that the Los Angeles police couldn't even have. It would create riots in the street. And meanwhile, what would Manson and his family be doing? They would be secreted out to a, the desert where they were already compiling uh, cars and ammunition and food supplies and things like that. And they would be waiting out. Now, remember, this sounds crazy. It's, it's not me speaking. This is Helter Skelter Manson, you know, theory speaking. They'd be waiting out this, this riot that would be happening in Los Angeles. And once it got to a boiling point, then Manson, the great savior, would come in and save everything and be the, the hero. And he would be the savior, um, and would, you know, really rescue, um, the especially the 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 black the African American community, and therefore would be their leader. I mean, it's crazy. Well, so Absolutely so just like with a lot of gurus, going on uh, like with a lot of gurus, he had an apocalyptic plan, and this was how it was going to happen. Yeah. And this whole idea of helter skelter. Now going back to the Beatles, um, I understand yeah. Man- Manson believed that he influenced the Beatles to come up with that song, which of course is crazy because that song existed. That was before uh, Manson ever came up with it. But he had this idea that that one particular album that had Helter Skelter on it, that there were messages, secret messages uh, to him from the Beatles. Talk about that. Yeah, exactly that, that there were messages coming to him and that only he, uh, because, because they were sent to him only he could decipher them and he would then have been telling them to his family. So he would say, you know, this is, these are the messages I'm getting and this is how we have to act on them. And so they would listen to the music at Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch was, as you alluded to, one of the places he got, um, what well, was the place actually that he got sort of free. He got it from this old, um, uh, a guy there in, in, uh, California. Actually, this was Spawn Ranch. It was kind of strange to go there. All these years later, nothing much is there right now, but they'd have places there and they would listen to the music. They would take care of the ranch. They would give, um, rides to people. It was a, it was a working sort of kind of dude ranch almost where they would give rides to, um, visitors, tourists who would come in. And that's where they were indoctrinated with all of this stuff. I mean, and, you know, sort of younger minds, these young women that would come in and just listen to all this. They'd sit under a rock, I mean, a literal rock. Um, the famous pictures of these women sitting there and kind of gather and listen to the music and listen to him play Beatles music and say, you know, this is what it means. These are the, these are the messages I'm getting. And it wasn't just love at all. It was violence, violence. And least talk about the talk about the women, because that's another thing about this that is very unusual is the idea of getting a group of women to follow a guy like Manson and then go out and be involved in murder. Um, These are young women in their 20s. This is 1969. This is even hard to even imagine in today's world, no less in the world of Leave it to Beaver 1969, that you could get women to be so devoted to a five foot two a struggling musician named Charlie Manson that he could get you to go out uh, to commit murder uh, on his behalf. Uh, what are your thoughts about the women? And then, then of course, the shocking uh, thought of of Leslie Van Houten being actually uh, eligible for parole. Did she ever actually get released or she just became eligible to be released? 
I think she was actually, I think she was actually released, which is um, sort of shocking. I mean, some some of them, you know, uh, Sandy, um, oh, uh, Sandy, um, Sandy Goodman. I mean, they have so many different names. Um, she was she was released, but she didn't have anything to do with it. Or Lynette Lynette Fromm. You know, she she was released. She attempted to assassinate uh, President Ford, um, but she didn't have anything to do with the with the the murders. So some of them I can I can see with when they were part of the family, but they didn't have anything to do with the murders. But the women that were involved with the murders, I don't understand why they should ever be released. I mean, as long as you have victims, family members living. And, you know, again, I was at that Tex Watson hearing, and at the end of it, these victim family members had a chance to allocute or, or talk about, you know, their how they've been impacted by it. As long as you have those people, those those poor souls that have to live with this, why should any of these executors really have a chance to, to get out and breathe fresh air? I, I don't understand that. In, in my humble opinion, I, and, I just and California, I mean, California did have a death penalty at one time, isn't that right? Yes, they did. And so, yes, were were many and of the, were many were many of these people on death row, um, or did they not get uh, did they not get sentenced to death? They just got life sentences. They just got life sentences because yeah, that that changed. Um, so they so they were not. Yeah, no, no death sentence for Charlie Charles Manson because of that. Because California changed its law, so um, none of them got the death sentence. And he had how many parole yeah. hearings? I mean, they, they would talk about it in the news oh. that he's up again for parole, and no one expected him to ever be able to get paroled. So was this just sort of you know perfunctory that they would go through these parole oh. hearings with Manson? What did he have like twenty parole hearings or something crazy I, like that? I, don't I can't even yeah I mean I don't I think I've lost count of how many parole hearings I'm sure I have the number in my book but I I think I lost count I mean I um I think he almost took them as you know just a joke at a certain point and there was no way that he was going to get parole he he got more mail than almost any other prisoner I think in the history of the California um, prison system apparently he just got you know he got love letters. He had one woman who was just there um, with him, you know, constantly. Again, a young woman who was there and he wanted to actually marry her there at the very end. I mean, I don't understand that. Didn't someone marry him while he was in prison? At At least didn't he get married? I don't think they were. I don't think they were. I don't think that was ever actually consummated. Okay. Well, it may have been consummated, but I don't think the marriage actually went through. And I also think that one was for perhaps other purposes. I think she was trying to make money off of Manson. Uh, I think that was a whole setup to try to make money because, of course, at the end there, you know, there's, there's money to be made. Off yeah, of speaking of Rollins. money, Manson. Yeah, one of the parts of your book you get into, which I found absolutely fascinating, because I would think, okay, here's Charles Manson. He's been in prison all of these years. How could this guy possibly have an estate? Like, 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 you know, a lot of people that work hard their whole lives they don't leave an estate. But here's a guy what? that's been in prison most of his adult life and and has an estate that literally people are fighting over. And there's even, I guess, is it a grandson that becomes 
the, and, and what are the yeah. a, what are the assets and, and the value of of an estate and where would the money come from uh, for Charles Manson having been in prison all that time? Where would his wealth have come from? Well, I don't know how much money is in that estate, but there must be something because they're they're fighting over it. Now, they first fought over his his body, and that's it was Jason Freeman um, trying to contact his grandfather. And he tried to contact his grandfather for quite a long time. This is the the, the son born by the very first wife, the wife that he you know uh, married when he was when she was only thirteen, I think she was. Um, but uh, his very first wife, who he said he loved, and said that that was really the only love that he ever had. But anyway, um, Jason Freeman tried to contact him for years, and while he was in prison, Mason didn't have anything of it, and Manson didn't have anything of it, and then finally. Uh, you know, maybe 10 years before he died, he started talking to the grand, through the grandson. And the grandson was actually awarded Manson's body. Oh, you know, wonderful. Uh, but there was a fight about it. And when I was doing the research for the book and went to California, went to Spawn Ranch, went to Cielo Drive, you know, went to all the spots, I kind of got into the, to the underworld of Mansonites, um, to, to kind of get a, um, what's the best way of putting it? A tour guide to tour, sort of take me through the places like Spawn Ranch. Yeah, this you is a this is a thing, right? I I, I went on YouTube and saw there's some guy who makes a ton <laughs> of money. Did he drives yeah, he drives people to all the different sites and everything. Now this probably sounds crazy to you, but I probably would go on that tour only because. I'm just fascinated with history. And to me, this is part of history, but it is kind of a bizarre thing to think about that. You know, all these murders and all these horrible things have turned into someone's tour here in the year 2020. So you went on the tour. What was that like? Well, I, no, I, no, 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 I didn't take it. I didn't take a that tour. I'm not even sure what that one is, but I didn't take that tour. But I found um, a guy who could t- take me. Um, to these places. It wasn't a tour like that, though. That's weird. Um, <laughs> there is a, there's a guy who actually does tours of that. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's a Jack the Ripper tour, too, Ooh. if you ever go to London, which is quite popular, believe it or not. Oh, God. But uh, yeah, so, so you went oh. to all these sites. And what was that like to just physically? I know the house on Cielo Drive is no longer there, but you could still kind of imagine the the drive up into the hills there to that house and to just be there and to be at the ranches. What was that like? It was, it was really, it was really eerie and you can go up to the very end there. You can see the, you know, you go up to the gate um, where Gary Hinman was killed. Again, the first, the first guy was killed. You can see that house is still there. Uh, and you can see, you know, where he would have been killed and, the, and you, there's a description kind of, of the tree that's very close to the house where he would have been held for so long. And, uh, Spawn Ranch, of course, I spent a couple of hours in Spawn Ranch just walking around. There's a lot of poison ivy there. So if you ever go there, make sure you wear long pants because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of poison ivy. Um, but I went and, and found that rock where they all used to sit and wow. went down the, kind of the, um, hiked around there for a while. So yeah, I didn't just take a tour. I mean, I really, I, w- I wanted to see, what it was like and of course it's not a working ranch anymore but um it was very eerie and you could just imagine though uh a group of young people and manson there 
in that stretch of kind of wild brush and him just hatching and you know, drumming in this plant and it's it's pretty much out there, Topanga Canyon. Um and once you're out there, there's not a lot around you. It's not like you can just walk over to a Starbucks and say, you know, I think I'll get out of here now. This is nice, but I'm really not feeling it anymore. <laughs> it's not like that. You're stuck out there. You know, you're you're kinda committed when you're out there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Uh, it's no, there's no really, and there, I, I write about the book where one of the women, you know, is like, um, she sort of tries to get out and, and Manson kind of corners her on the, on kind of the edge of the canyon. And I walked out there and I see it. It's, it would be very scary because you could almost get pushed over there. I mean, there's, and no one would find you. <laughs> it's, it's really scary. I mean, once you're there, you're you're there and there's and even if you were to get out to a road you wouldn't have a vehicle so your biggest hope might be hitchhiking or something which someone might drive down yeah which would be scary if you could maybe catch a ride that way uh you know one of the things in the book description um you you make uh your publicity people say the political context uh, of what happened, you know, the rise of Manson is is very eerily similar to what's happening today. And a lot of people are making the comparison of what's going on today to the 1960s. I was born in 1965, so I was too young to, you know, really realize what was going on. Vietnam, JFK, RFK, Malcolm X. Um, you know, Martin Luther King, all of those, you know, deaths and all of the tragedies and the rioting and the race problems. Um, but in many ways, we really are back in the 1960s. Is, is that one of the, the thoughts in your book? Well, it's certainly, I mean, we do have so much tumult right now, right? And I mean, it's, it's, it's different, of course, but, um, you know, my dad was an FBI agent, uh, and we were stationed in Fort Worth, Dallas during JFK's assassination. And he was actually put on Marina Oswald. You know, Oswald, of course, killed JFK. And Marina Oswald was his widow, and he was put on Marina Oswald's detail. So we were there for quite a while. And my dad would take me to civil rights marches. I don't know why he would take this little tiny girl to civil rights marches, but he did. And, uh, I still have memories of those. Hmm. And I'm like, you know, three, four, five, you know, at the, at the oldest. And still I have memories, um, very, very young, uh, just, just thought memories, um, just snapshots. In fact, I wrote a book called Snapshots, <laughs> um, based on one of those, but a fiction book. Um, and here we are today, you know, and it's in some ways we've come a long way in race relations, but, in some ways, we haven't. And this is now another pivotal moment in our history. And what are we going to do with it? You know, what are we going to do with it? Absolutely. Well, I the, hope we've come a long way. The book is fascinating. It's called Hunting Charles Manson. And I should also say that Lise Wheel is quite a prolific author. She has a lot of um, fiction books, which I haven't read any of your novels, but they are very well reviewed. I have to ask you, which do you enjoy more, writing the fiction or the nonfiction? Oh boy. 
Um, I love them both. I'm so um, blessed that I get to do what I love and which is right. And it, it's just, and that, that you read them and that's wonderful. Um, and they're just such different beasts, right? With, with nonfiction, it's hard, hard work because a book like, you know, Manson, for example, it takes, it takes a couple of years. I mean, when I'm talking about like visiting Spawn Ranch and stuff, that's the fun part. That's towards the end when I've done all of the hard, hard work. Uh, can you imagine digging through a case that's 50 years old and even trying to get records out from California, FOIA requests and digging through, uh, trying to get records from the LAPD and other areas. Oh my God. And the I fiction mean, book, you get to, the, the fiction book, you just get to make it all up fiction, as you go. And there's no fact yeah, check. There's no fact checkers because it's all in your, no head. the story's all in your head. It's all in my head. <laughs> it's, I get to make it up. In fact, if I didn't make it up, I'd be in trouble. Um, you know, although it's based a lot on what I've reported on in my life or what I, I told you, I mean, I was a federal prosecutor, so it's cases. I mean, like I said, I'd be in trouble if I based it too much on fact or too much on real people. Um, but it's harder in the sense that, you know, I have to make up the dialogue. I have to come up with all that people say yeah. versus uh, nonfiction. It's all there for me. I, I, I just can lift up the dialogue and lift it up and figure out where to put it in the book. And for, for people watching the so, video, the video feed, yeah. I'm I'm holding up your book right now for people that want to get the book. It's Hunting Charles Manson. I, this is at m our local bookstores here all over Florida. Um, and also, I know it's on Amazon. I, I believe there's also a Kindle version, also an audio version, too. Is that right? Everything. Yes, yes, yes. For people that want to um, get absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can also go to my website, which is just leasewheelbooks.com. Just my full name spelled out, leasewheelbooks.com. And that's W-I-E-H-L. We want to make sure we get that right so that people don't go yeah. to the wrong place. And we're going to have you back in a few weeks to talk about the Unabomber. That case is just incredible. But I have to tell you, we just scratched the surface here on Charles Manson, and I want to recommend your book. If you're a true crime fan, you're going to love this book. A lot of things you never knew about the Charles Manson case and some new perspectives. And I think you'll enjoy it. It's a beautiful hardcover book. It would make a, uh, a great Christmas gift. In fact, we have an extra couple of copies here that your publicity people said and I said to my wife, I said, do we have any friends that we could give a book to about Charles Manson just, you know, as, as a gift? And she said, well, let me think about Excellent. that. I'm not sure. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to give them to some of our friends. But we've got to find out who who the true crime people are, because they're going to be like, what is wrong with uh, with Jim Paris giving me a book about Charles <laughs> Manson? But uh, yeah, so but we have the true crime there. Excellent. There's true crime is huge right now. I don't know if you've ever done like any podcasts, but there's like a company out of Southern California called called Wondery, and they're turning a lot of these books into podcasts and stories where they do a really good job with music and different voices. And it's almost like you're there. I could oh. see I could see your book becoming a podcast. There's actually a couple of them right now about Charles Manson's life. But uh, that would be another way to sort of, you know, rebrand this content and put it out there uh, again. But uh, this will be probably do, do you think like the biggest case ever? I mean, some people said it was until OJ. But do you think the Manson case is that case that is the biggest, you know, criminal trial we've we've ever had? It's certainly one of the biggest. It's it, in the in that it changed, like we said, 
American culture. I mean, OJ did too in a different way, and it certainly it just bore you know bore all these legal analysts and it changed the legal world, the legal landscape in a different way. But Manson changed American culture. I mean, it just did overnight. People just became afraid, and I think there was just a loss of innocence that we'll never get back. I mean, we don't see it ourselves because we're you know we're born past the 1969 when we're you know our age. I was born pre-1969 too, but but meaning that we were you know of age after that. But our parents, you know, my parents say. That just changed everything. That just changed our worldview. And I think that's absolutely true. Everything after Manson just changed. Yeah, Charles and, Manson, uh, a, a, name, a name, I mean, you can say that name in any group, any room you're in, and Everyone knows everybody that. knows the name Charles Manson. Fascinating, Lise Wheel. Thanks so much for joining us. You're, uh, I, I've watched you for years on Got TV. It. You're such a great person. And my producer said, she's such a nice lady uh, for being such a, a big name Aww. person. She said, she's such a nice lady. I, I'm so surprised. I said, well, don't be surprised. <laughs> she's, she's, you know, some people are as nice in person Why? as they are on TV, but uh, uh, we have our, you know, we have our we have our guests that sometimes aren't as nice, and, and you're super nice, and we appreciate you being here, and we look forward oh. to having you back. Oh, I got to I got to tell you I got to tell you one thing since you're giving out the hardcover, I'm so excited. So in the hardcover, there you know there's a photo insert, and in the, I have one photo which I took of Tex Lawson. It's my first photo that I took that's published in a book. So I have a photo wow. credit. Look for it. And that could be like an income, a royalty income stream for you. Cause that would be a pretty rare uh, picture probably of him at that parole hearing. Uh, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again I in a few weeks. About that. Yeah. Very good. Thank God you. bless you. Be thank good. you. Be wow. What an interesting uh, interview. I have to tell you, I interview a lot of people and I'm just a curious person. And some people would say, how in the world does a Christian money guy get a show on Manson? I mean, do a show on Manson. And I, you know, I often say this, maybe I say it too much and the regular listeners know, um, I'm fascinated with these characters. I really am because I think so many times, um, these people, I believe many of them are demon possessed. I think there's a spiritual thing going on here. I think the idea of false leaders, um, cult leaders, uh, false prophets, whatever you want to call them, goes back all the way to the days of Jesus. And I think especially young women today need to know about the danger of these narcissistic sociopath psychopaths. And uh, I teach women self-defense. It's one of the things I love to do. And uh, these dangerous personalities are things that we continue to look at on the show. One of our favorite themes is true crime. I sure hope you liked uh, that uh, interview on Charles Manson, and you'll grab a copy of that book if you're a true crime aficionado. And Elise Wheel will be back in a few weeks to talk about her book, Hunting the Unabomber. And remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. We'll talk to you next time. So long, everybody.